Hello everybody and Kia ora. In today's session, our presenters will talk about the findings um, of the Ostrowitz project that benchmarked available fatigue laboratory test results of um, locally manufactured asphalt mixes against the fatigue performance uh, predicted by the generic Ostrowitz fatigue relationship. Uh, we have almost 300 people registered for today's session. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Senior Communications Officer at Ostroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with Peter Bryant, who was the project manager for this project. Peter will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. Ostrot is based in Sydney and uh, today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging and a um, deep and ongoing connection to the land. A little bit about Ostroads, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, the project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Programme, which is managed by Ross Gapi. A bit of housekeeping, our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The slides and the report can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. Um, to send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, uh, please include the number of that slide in your message um, to help, um, help us answer your question as best as we can. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely um, with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session via your um, email registration link usually helps. This session has been recorded and we will let you know when uh, the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, um, you can find Ostroads in your podcast app. Um, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today, uh, Joe Grobler and Dr. Nigin Jalijou. Um, Joe is a specialist pavement engineer and leader for the Australian Road Research Board's Smarter Construction Outcomes uh, portfolio. Joe has 20 years experience in pavement and material investigations, mechanistic modelling, um, design, uh, material specifications and construction support. Nikin is a senior technology leader at the Australian Road Research Board with more than 10 years of combined industry, research and teaching experience. Nikin's projects are focused on pavement material uh, characterization, recycled materials, performance and modelling um, and development of new pavement material performance relationships. Welcome to our presenters and over to you, John. Thank you, Ekaterina. Um, let's make a start. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I'll quickly run through a introduction to the team and the background, and then we'll um, talk a bit about more about the project itself. So firstly, just like to acknowledge um, Peter Bryant as the Osroach project manager, um, Dr. Jeff Jameson as the our quality manager for the project and then the support by Dr. Nagin um, throughout the project as well. Also the working group members um, that provided valuable input into the project and the review comments and, and getting everything across the line from the various state road authorities shown there on the screen and then also from the Australian Flexible Pavement Association. So thank you to everyone that contributed to the project. A bit of a project background before we get into it. So for many of you that's familiar with pavement design practices in Australia New Zealand, um, we currently use the um, Ostroads fatigue model in part two of the Ostroads guide to pavement technology to determine the fatigue life of asphalt pavement layers. Now that model was originally developed based um, by Shell about 40 years ago and has been used in Australia for the past 30 years. The original fatigue relationship shown there on the screen 
um, was modified um, some years ago um, for our local conditions um, and includes a shift factor and a reliability factor um, to uh, represent our field conditions. You can see there the model is a function of the binder content, the strain on the, um, at the bottom of the asphalt layer, as well as the stiffness. Um, like we said, this model was developed about 40 years ago, and, and the question is really how accurately does the shallow relationship um, represent the behavior of our locally manufactured mixes that we use both here in Australia and New Zealand, especially when we consider the changes in binders and the increase of recycled materials that occurred over the past years. So the purpose of the project is really overall to improve the cost effectiveness of our asphalt pavement designs by using um, local specific data where possible. The project itself is a, um, envisaged to be a multi-stage project. So um, this presentation is for stage one only. And um, stage one essentially comprised of a desktop review. So we didn't undertake any additional laboratory testing. We relied on testing data that's been supplied to us by um, the various state road agencies and asphalt suppliers. So the key elements of the project included a literature review, collating and analyzing that available test data, benchmarking it against the shell predicted values, and then documenting those findings in a technical report. We started off with a literature review. So the literature review mainly focused on some local and international practices regarding the modulus and fatigue relationships that's being used elsewhere um, based on laboratory testing. We also considered the effect of laboratory mix, laboratory compacted versus plant mix, laboratory laboratory compacted specimens and the reason why we looked at that is it um, is known to affect the, the fatigue and modulus behavior of asphalt mixes in the lab and we needed to have an appreciation of what those impacts could be when we um, develop our new models and then also having a look at what's an appropriate number of test specimens um, to undertake fatigue and modulus testing in the lab again um, to ensure that we can get a, a reliable fatigue relationship and we'll we'll talk about a bit about that more later. So as part of our literature review we considered our practices here locally in Australia and New Zealand as well as um, internationally um, France, UK, USA and South Africa all countries that we know has got a known history of using fatigue relationships and a mechanistic approach to the design of pavements. We started off with having a look at the shallow relationship and what could potentially be some of the limitations of the relationship that we're currently using. Um, as we mentioned before, it was developed previously about 40 years ago. Um, it included 13 international mixtures with conventional pitchments. So none of us Australian mixes were included in that original study. It only included two dense graded asphalt mixes. Um, to develop that relationship and as you can appreciate the majority of our mixes locally um, fall under that category. Um, it only included cantilever and midpoint testing which is different to the four-point bending tests that we do in the lab um, locally. Um, seven out of the 35 test combinations were done at 20 degrees and only one of that uh, those combinations were actually done at a 10 hertz loading cycle which is again what we do locally. So essentially there's certainly differences in in practices um, that, that we adopt here versus what was used originally to develop that shallow relationship. We then look at how we characterize our asphalt mixes locally um, for uh, modulus. Um, so there's a couple of ways um, that we do that in order of preference. The first way for design purposes is the direct measurement or estimated or presumptive values. So if we look at direct measurements, um, the preferred approach is to determine the flexural modulus using four-point bending testing in the lab and um, to do that testing at a range of loading conditions and temperatures to come up with a master curve that we can then use to determine the design modulus for pavement design purposes. A second approach that's also being used locally is a resilient modulus um, based on indirect tensile testing 
and then that gets converted into a design modulus as well. Least preferred but still very often used or least accurate is estimated or presumptive values. So um, there's some road agencies that uses the shell nomographs um, that we show there on the right to, uh, based on the binder and mixed properties to determine the uh, modulus of the asphalt for design purposes. And then pretty much every road agency has got a um, presumptive values based on the mixed type, binder type, um, design temperature and traffic speed. And those presumptive values were typically um, developed from indirect tensile um, testing in the past of standard mixes. If we look at how modulus is typically characterized internationally, it's a bit of a mixed bag between those countries. Um, a lot of all of the countries do provide some presumptive values, but there's also a combination of direct measurements for flexural modulus, dynamic modulus, even in situ modulus, um, depending on on the design system and the jurisdiction. So there's there's certainly not a standard approach um, around um, um, internationally that's being used. If we look at fatigue and how we characterize the fatigue performance of our asphalt mixes, um, locally, um, by far the mostly used um, method is the, like we said, the fatigue relationship developed by Shell in the Ostroge Guide to Pavement Technology. Um, but more recently, there's also been a, um, some developments specifically by the Department, Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads to use mixed specific um, fatigue relationships. And that's documented in the TMR technical note 167. So essentially you um, test 27 beams across three different temperatures and you can develop a fatigue relationship based on that data. Osteroads also provides a general form for a fatigue um, relationship that can be used based on mixed specific testing. Um, the, the figure there on the right hand side, the equation, but it's important to note that the guide also states that at this point in time, um, there's, there's no reliable way to, to develop a, or a methodology to develop a shift factor to use that relationship for um, pavement design purposes. So something to keep in mind. There is options um, to use mixed specific data, but mostly the generic relationship developed by Shell is used. If we look at international practice, again, not surprising, certainly differences between the uh, different jurisdictions, um, but they all have their own um, generic relationships based on their um, local um, research. Um, but essentially all the models rely on the strain and the test at the bottom of or the strain and at, at the bottom of the asphalt layer, some model constants, some relationships include um, all the relationships include a modulus factor, and some relationships also include a mixed specific factors such as air voids content, um, binder content, and the like. But again, there's not a standardized approach to um, developing fatigue-specific um, fatigue relationships. The second component um, that we looked at is laboratory versus plant mix um, compacted specimens. And why is this important? We know that um, the different um, conditioning procedures that we use for preparing um, specimens um, can affect both the modulus and the fatigue of those specimens whether you sample materials from the plant and reheat it in the laboratory or whether you manufacture those samples in the laboratory from raw materials. Um, what we found is there's certainly limited comparative fatigue testing between these different specimen preparation methods. Um, the literature does suggest that your plant mix samples, uh, specimens generally have a higher stiffness compared to your laboratory mix specimens, and this is probably due to the additional reheating cycle in the lab. Um, some studies found a reduction in fatigue resistance for um, reheated specimens. Um, the percentage of RAP can also affect um, both your modulus and your fatigue um, for, uh, for plant versus lab mix um, specimens. 
And why that is important is currently um, in Australia and New Zealand, there's different approaches to testing the fatigue behavior of, of these mixes in the lab. And um, some jurisdictions use plant mix specimens and other use lab mix specimens. So when we start combining our data and developing models, it's important to know what those effects might be. Also importantly is that the um, current asteroids method for sample preparation does not include any methods to reheat plant mix samples. Um, so that that's a concern as well um, and may affect the variability between um, different, uh, different mix results. So just something to consider. Then as part of our literature review, we also looked at the minimum number of test specimens required to, to reliably characterize the fatigue behavior of, of asphalt mixes in the lab. And again, why did we have a look at this? So the original test method, the previous test method, T233 was replaced by T274 in 2016. And one of the big changes, there was a couple of major changes, but one of the big changes to the test method was the number of specimens required for developing a fatigue curve or for testing asphalt mixes in the lab. So the previous method only required three specimens at one loading condition, whereas T274, which is mainly based on the European test method, requires now 18 specimens at three different loading conditions. So that gives you six specimens per loading condition. So it's essentially doubling the amount of specimens per loading condition. And as a result, um, and reasonably so, um, industry is asking, is the increase in testing time, cost, and sample sizes um, justified in the new test method? So previous Ostroad study did demonstrate um, the importance of, of the 18 specimens to achieve a reliable um, fatigue curve. Um, and, and really showed that 18 is, is the minimum to, to, to get the level of reliability required for, for, for design purposes. If we have a look at some of the other in, um, fatigue tests being used um, both locally and internationally, you can see there that South Australia has got a method where they test five specimens at different load, each at a different loading condition. Um, TMR has got a method 27 specimens at three loading conditions, but across three temperatures. So that essentially gives you three specimens per loading conditions. The European standard is 18 at three loading conditions, so that's six per, per loading condition. Uh, the two American standards, ASHTO and ASTM, the one requires three at one loading condition and the other six specimens at different, all at different loading conditions. And then Sabita, uh, which is the South African approach, also requires three specimens at a single loading condition for level two designs, and similar to TMR, 27 specimens at three loading conditions at three temperatures for level three designs. So again, you can see there, there's, there's not necessarily a standardized approach as to what would be the minimum amount of test specimens required. Um, and we'll talk about that a bit later down when we look at our data analysis as well. Key takeaway from the literature is the shell fatigue model is still being used locally, but there are some methods available um, to use mix-specific data um, or test results for um, to characterize the fatigue behavior of our local mixes. Um, there does appear to be a difference in modulus and fatigue behavior of lab mix versus plant mix specimens. And then also different test methods specify different the minimum number of specimens um, for fatigue characterization. So that's the key takeaway items from our literature review. Before we started um, our, our modeling, we had a look at some of the factors affecting fatigue life. Um, to, give, to give you an idea of the fatigue data that we did receive from industry and the various state-rate agencies, so we received um, test results from a variety of different jurisdictions. Overall, we got a, about 2,500 data points. That's a lot of data points, but it is worth noting that um, all those data points doesn't necessarily represent the same testing conditions. So we received data that represented multiple strain, single temperature testing, multiple strain, multiple temperature, single strain, single temperature, 
individual results versus average results, and then results for lab mix and plant mix specimens. So it was a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the data that we did receive. And that then affects the, um, the amount of, um, affects our modeling that we were able to do. Some of the limitations in the data that we received, approximately 50% of that data was based on the previous test method, um, the T233. Um, most of the test results were at a single strain level, and that's the test that's as a result of using that um, superseded test method. Limited testing at temperatures other than 20 degrees C's, and then also limited comparative testing between mixes with and without RAP. So some of those, those limitations certainly affected um, the modeling that we were able to do or the outcomes of our modeling, and we'll talk about that when we discuss the outcomes. Um, before we uh, looked at the um, fatigue, um, that, uh, before we undertook the fatigue modeling, we considered again some of those factors that may affect our fatigue lives. Um, we looked at our data and how, uh, whether we could uh, um, determine any trends in, in sample preparation techniques, the effects of RAP, and the number of test specimens. So based on the data that we received, uh, we wanted to identify whether we could um, see a, a difference between the lab mix and the plant mix specimens. Unfortunately, we did not have direct comparative testing, one mix with and one um, prepared in the lab versus the same mix sampled from the plant. So we had to look at the overall population of data. And um, what we saw there was, um, if we look on the top left, um, your fatigue life and initial modulus, there was a difference between your lab mix and your plant um, mix specimens statistically. The same with your measured fatigue life between the two specimen preparation methods on the right hand side there. Not a big difference, but statistically the, um, there was a, a difference between the two specimen preparation methods. And the bottom graph was the closest we had to some form of direct comparison where we had a mix from a state, um, the same mix type, different specimen preparation um, methods, but not necessarily the same mix. So it was the same mix type, but not exactly the same mix. And again, you can see the, the plant mix specimens um, showed a higher, um, had a higher initial modulus compared to the um, compared to the lab mix specimens. So based on this limited data, it suggests that um, your specimen preparation method um, can have an effect on, on your um, results, which is consistent with our literature review findings. We also had a look at RAP versus no RAP, um, because that may affect whether you need different models. Again, there was very limited direct comparative testing with mixes with RAP and without RAP. We did have two mixes that included 15% RAP and the same mix without any RAP. Um, these were conventional dense graded asphalt mixes and as you can see there for both of them, um, it suggests that the inclusion of that 15% RAP did not have a significant effect on the fatigue life of the mix, which is consistent with what we, um, what we know about mixes containing relatively low percentages of RAP. Um, we had the same um, set of results, but for um, EME2 asphalt with and without RAP, 10%. And again, the addition of that 10% RAP um, didn't um, have a significant effect on the fatigue life, which is co consistent with our understanding of low percentages of RAP mixes. However, if we look at the um, modified mixes, so um, asphalt mixes containing polymer modified binders, um, graph there on the right hand shows a large variation in your uh, mixes without and with a wrap. Again, no direct comparative testing, but the variation was such that we couldn't make any meaningful conclusions based on the data regarding the effect of a wrap in, in polymer modified mixes. Um, what we do know from the literature though is that it is likely to affect um, the fatigue life, um, especially at higher percentages of RAP, possibly due to diluting the polymer, depending on the on the virgin on on the RAP binder that you use. 
We also had a look at um, the data that we received in terms of the minimum number of test specimens and how that might affect our um, confidence in our fatigue curves. So we had six mixes where we had a full set of 18 specimens. I'm only showing an example here for two of those mixes. And essentially what we did is we determined the uh, mean damage exponent um, for your fatigue relationship using the full 18 specimens as per the standard test. And then randomly we removed specimens um, to remove the um, um, sample size or the number of test results available to see how that might impact on our confidence interval. What we're showing there is the mean values as well as the 95% confidence interval, which means that we have 95% confidence that the true mean value will fall within those, those limits shown there. And as you can see there, um, as the specimens um, for each mix are reduced from 18 down to 6, your confidence interval increases, essentially meaning that you've got less confidence in your true mean value as the number of specimens reduces. Uh, what we can also see, and this is pretty much consistent for the other um, four mixes as well, is that that level of confidence do remain reasonably constant down to about 12 specimens. So that'll be four uh, specimens per loading condition. So there could potentially be opportunities depending on the level of confidence that you require. So whether it's for benchmarking purposes or full pavement design to reduce um, the number of specimens um, for the test. But um, for pavement design purposes to establish a fatigue relationship, the recommendation is still to stick with, with 18 specimens. Another factor that we identified that, that could potentially affect our, our modeling and our outcomes is um, uh, an issue with, with polymer-modified asphalt testing in the laboratory. So what we show there on the graph on the left-hand side is dense-graded asphalt binders with conventional bitumen and then a dense-graded asphalt binder with A15E polymer-modified binder in the dense-graded asphalt. And you can see there is, as we expect, a significant difference in the fatigue life um, between the polymer and the non-polymer mixes. And on the right-hand side, so this was based on some data we received, another study um, that was undertaken on the right-hand side, we can see there a big difference in fatigue life between a standard AC14 mix and an AC10 mix with an A5E binder, uh, with a factor of as high as 15 um, difference in fatigue life at the, strain, at the same strain level in a laboratory test. Now, that's important because in service, what we found is that that relative difference in performance we're seeing between PMB and standard mixes in the lab doesn't necessarily relate to the field performance. A NACO study found that A15E binders typically had a service life of about one and a half times more than uh, conventional bitumen. An NCAT study in the States found two times greater than a conventional bitumen. Vic Rhodes found one and a half times. So essentially what we're seeing is the relative difference in performance in the lab for PMB versus conventional mixes is much larger than um, those uh, the field performance that we're seeing in service. And that's something to consider when we use laboratory test data to develop uh, fatigue models. That brings me to the end of, of my session, and we'll hand over now to um, Nagin to talk through the um, analysis that we've done. Thanks, Nagin. Nigin, you are muted. Yeah, sorry. Thanks, Joe and Ekaterina. Hi, everyone, uh, and uh, welcome to this webinar. As Joe mentioned, uh, I would be talking about the fatigue life analysis and the fatigue relationship modeling. Uh, so one of the main focus of the data analysis in this project was to benchmark the laboratory performance of locally manufactured asphalt mixes against the performance predicted by the uh, shell lab fatigue relationship. As 
uh, Joe mentioned earlier, Australia and New Zealand have been using the generic in service fatigue relationship for the asphalt thickness design, which is based on the lab fatigue relationship that was developed more than 40 years ago. Therefore, uh, we wanted to understand whether the shell model is a good representative of the fatigue behavior of asphalt mixes or no, especially for the uh, modern mixes that are currently being manufactured and used in Australia and New Zealand. So to find the answer, we uh, compared and benchmarked the available uh, received laboratory fatigue test results against the predicted fatigue life using the shell model. Uh, and another part of the analysis I would be talking uh, was to undertake an assessment of the laboratory measured fatigue life of locally manufactured ashbog mixes with either conventional or modified binders, uh, as well as mixes with uh, low percentages of RAP. Uh, before going straight to the analysis and results, I first wanted to show this uh, box and whisker plot showing the uh, fatigue life of different main asphalt mix types available for the project. You can see uh, DGA, uh, dense graded asphalt with conventional bitumen, DGA with PMBs, EME2 mixes, GGA, gap graded asphalt mix with chrome rubber modified binders, and SMA with uh, conventional and modified binders. Uh, they are all showing the measured fatigue life at a standard test uh, temperature of 20 degree and at tensile strain of 200 microstrain to have a, a consistent comparison. Uh, so uh, we can see the relative distribution of data for each mix here and also how scattered the data at each group are uh, using the whiskers and boxes in this graph. Uh, I should add that we had limited data points for the SMA and GGA mixes. But overall, we can see that uh, as expected, the asphalt specimens with uh, polymer modified binders have a higher resistance to fatigue uh, compared to the same mixes with conventional bitumen, uh, except for the EFE2 mixes. Uh, so with this information about the available data for different mixes, we get to uh, benchmarking the laboratory measured fatigue performance against the performance predicted by the shell model. Uh, the left figure here shows the, this comparison for all mixes, uh, all mixes we received for the project, and the right figure shows this comparison for only uh, dense graded asphalt mixes. Uh, you may ask how we obtain the predicted values. So uh, we obtain the predicted values using the volumetric properties uh, and the measured flexural moduli from the laboratory tests, and then use them as input into the shell model. Obviously, the relationship without the reliability and shift factors. Uh, so the moduli were from direct measurement of uh, the flexural modulus for each specific mix, either from uh, available uh, direct flexural modulus measurement or estimated from flexural modulus master care. Um, although some of the fatigue test results we received uh, didn't include the corresponding flexural modulus results, therefore uh, these figures show only a subcategory of the entire available data set. Um, also, I should add that these figures uh, show the results at different test uh, conditions. I mean, different test temperatures, different strain levels, uh, as well as the results for both LMLC and PMLC specimens. Therefore, it's important to uh, note that we cannot compare the relative fatigue performance of different mixes and binders based on these figures. But here, we wanted to demonstrate how well the shell relationship can predict the fatigue life of the lo locally manufactured asphalt mix. Uh, and as you can see here, the results uh, for in both figures, both for all mixes as well as only the DGA mixes, show that the shell relationship predicted a higher fatigue life compared to the lab measured data, especially for specimens uh, manufactured with conventional binders. Uh, we can see that some of the DJ specimens with PMBs showed an opposite trend by having a significantly higher measured fatigue values compared to the shell model, uh, the yellow markers here. However, 
these points are related to a limited number of Ashwad mixes, such as VGA with A15, EPMB, or a uh, limited number of data points for mixes A10B and A5 EPMBs. Uh, then we also looked at the mixes with PMDs individually, as you can see in the left figure here. So uh, when specimens are separated into different PMD classes, uh, the results vary depending on the binder class. For example, the mixes with an A15 E binder were generally the ones having the opposite trend and showing a higher measured fatty values compared to the shell predictions. Uh, the, yellow markers in the left figure. Uh, the right figure shows the comparison for speciality mixes, uh, including uh, EME2, GGA chrome rubber binders, and a proprietary mix. Uh, as you can see here, for the EME2 and proprietary mix, the shell predictions are closer to the laboratory test results, um, especially at the higher fatigue lives there is a lower difference between uh, the two values compared to the dense graded mixes that I showed in the previous slide. Uh, however, uh, the shell model again generally overpredicted the fatigue life for GGA mixes. Um, and we can see significant, significantly higher predictions for some GGA specimens that are shown with yellow markers in the uh, right figure. Um, in the project report, you can find uh, the average number, the average ratios between the predicted and measured static life. But uh, given the webinar presentation time today, we wanted to uh, just present the major outcome and results at each section, but additional uh, detailed information uh, are included in the report. Uh, another interesting uh, thing you can find in the report as an example, is that we also made this comparison uh, benchmarking analysis between the lab test results and the shell prediction using the presumptive moduli that you uh, mentioned, that the presumptive moduli that are specified by various road jurisdictions for different mix types. Um, so we use them as input in the model. All this uh, information are, uh, can be found in the ASTROS report. So now I talk about the lab measured fatigue life for DGA mixes and the associated analysis. Uh, the left figure shows the fatigue performance of DGA specimens manufactured with conventional binders tested at different temperatures, fatigue life versus tensile strain. Uh, and on top of this figure, you can see the general form of mix-specific mix fatigue relationships for uh, each temperature. Uh, the results. Uh, as expected, uh, clearly show that the fatigue life of a specimen decreased with a decrease in test temperature, meaning a lower tolerable strain at lower temperature, except and at uh, 10 degrees Celsius, which had a higher fatigue life uh, compared to the specimens tested at 15. Uh, the green and red uh, trend lines in the left figure. Uh, however, it's interesting to note that several previous studies also found that the fatigue life of ashpot mixes decreases with a decrease in test temperature uh, in the laboratory up to a certain temperature. And then after that point, with further reduction in temperature, the life may again start to increase. Uh, now the results we observed uh, for 15 degree here might be an indication of reaching that plateau uh, however, we cannot make a firm conclusion on this here because uh, there was only a data of one mix for the 15 degree test. And uh, given the lab test data variability, it might not be necessarily an accurate representative of the fatigue life of mixes at 15. Uh, the right figure here uh, shows the damage exponents from the laboratory fatigue measurements the slope of the regression curves uh, with associated 95% confidence intervals for each different temperatures. Uh, you can see that the damage exponent varies from 4.2 to 5.5 for different temperatures uh, with a mean value of 4.7. Um, I should add that the number of data points in each temperature group is different. As, uh, 
noted in the figure. For example, we, uh, we had uh, most of the fatigue data uh, for 20 degree temperature, but only one or two mixes were available for 15 and 35 degrees Celsius. Uh, therefore, the limited available data points at some temperatures might uh, affect the damage exponent and the statistical parameters. Um, although the slope for different test temperatures still lie within a similar range, uh, but we also obtain the average damage exponent excluding those limited data points for 15, 25, and 35, and uh, the mean became 4.5. Uh, which for most cases are la the damage exponent are lower than five uh, the exponent used in the shared fatigue relationship. Uh, the same analysis was undertaken for uh, DGA with PMDs. Uh, the left figure shows the fatigue performance of DGA specimens uh, manufactured with different PMDs tested at different temperatures again. Uh, you can see that uh, there is a high degree of scatter data for DGA specimens with PMBs, especially at 20 and 30 degrees Celsius. Um, because this figure included all different PMB classes, we then looked at the fatigue performance of DGA mixes separated by PMB class, as shown in the right figure, because we wanted to see whether uh, this variability, this scattered data, could be explained by the different PMB classes or not. Um, the right figure also is related to the 20 degree temperature only. Uh, it can be seen that the significant variability in the leaf-left figure is uh, mainly due to the different PMB binder classes, but this may not be the only reason because we can still uh, see the scattered data in the right figure. Uh, another possible reason could be related to different sources of binders. The binder source uh, can influence the fatigue performance of PMBs due to differences in their properties. But overall, the results uh, based on the available data shows that uh, A15E specimens had a significantly higher fatigue life uh, compared to A10E mixes, which was not really expected. Again, the binder source, source might be one of the contributing reasons here. Um, also, uh, as Joe also mentioned earlier, there were limited data points available for the PMBs compared to the conventional vision. And therefore, it may not be possible to make a firm conclusion about the findings of mixes with uh, PMBs in this stage of the project. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, the specimens with the A35P binder, uh, the blue triangles in the right figure, uh, they showed a lower resistance to fatigue compared to other PMBs uh, at the same test condition. Um, it also showed the least variability as well, uh, with a strain damage exponent of 4.6, uh, so more similar to DGA mixes with uh, conventional vitamins. Uh, now we go to the development uh, of new preliminary laboratory fatigue relationships. Uh, as discussed in the previous session, we found that the current shell relationship in the guide uh, generally overpredicted the lab fatigue life of locally manufactured mixes with uh, conventional binders. Therefore, uh, we wanted to develop a new preliminary fatigue relationship to uh, predict the performance of DGA mixes with conventional bitumen to potentially re replace the shared relationship in OSPROD in the future. Uh, and to do this, we used, we uh, investigated the two general forms of the fatigue relationship shown here that are uh, compatible with the current OSPROD pavement design system and using the same parameters. Uh, then uh, we conducted regression analysis on the available uh, fatigue test data for DGA mixes and uh, using those uh, specified parameter combinations. Uh, these two figures show the range of test uh, strains, the range of measured fatigue life, and the range of measured lectural moduli that we use uh, to develop the relationship. For example, the strain levels ranged between 90 to 350 microstrain. Uh, the mean flexural moduli, moduli of specimens varied between 
uh, around 2,200 megapascal to uh, 13,000 megapascal, depending on the test temperature, as you can see in the right figure. Uh, and uh, I want to add that these data are related to DGA mixes with different binder parts. Uh, binders including C320, C600, and 67G penetration grade each of them. This slide shows the outcome of the regression analysis, the preliminary relationship developed for TG DGA mixes with conventional bitumen. Um, I should add that the results uh, include uh, the data for all DGA mixes, including RAP with 15%. And we had a total of 330 data points based on 11 different hashpot mixes for this regression analysis. And, uh, the right figure shows the logarithm of the predicted fatigue lives uh, versus the laboratory measured fatigue lives. Uh, as you can see, the results show that there is an acceptable conformity between uh, the measured values and the predicted values using this new relationship, the, the green circles here. And the root mean square error for the new model is significantly lower than the RMSE for the shell relationship, the shell shown by the blue markers, uh, which indicate that the relationship shown here is a better predictor of the laboratory performance of the locally manufactured mixes. Uh, the derived relationship has a damage exponent of 4.4, uh, which is lower than the exponent of 5 currently used in the Astros guide. Uh, also, the overall modulus exponent in this relationship is 1.1, which is again lower than the one in the current fatigue relationship. This means that the uh, model developed here, uh, based on the available data, is less sensitive to the changes in modulus and also a strength compared to the original shared relationship. Uh, and these differences in exponent and the constants are, of course, the influencing factors in the significant difference we observed in the previous uh, slides between the measured values and shared prediction. Uh, another important thing is that, uh, as you can see, this relationship is uh, a modulus-dependent model. Uh, we first undertook the regression analysis using the current form of the shell relationship, including volume of binder, uh, to somehow recalibrate that model. However, uh, that analysis resulted in a negative coefficient for BB volume of binder, and also the volume of binder was not a statistically significant parameter in that analysis. Uh, the reason of this uh, could be related to the very narrow range of BBs. Uh, in the regression analysis. Uh, the, the volume of binders ranged only between 10.5 and 11.6, with about 70% of them only between 11 to 11.3 based on the uh, received data. Uh, therefore, uh, to correctly or more appropriately differentiate the fatigue performance of mixes with different VBs, if the mixes may have different volume of bitumens, a wider range of volumes may be required in the next stages of the project to be able to develop a relationship, including this part. And finally, uh, similar uh, assessment and regression analysis were undertaken for EME2 mixes. Uh, you can see the preliminary relationship developed for this mix. Uh, the data also included EME2 uh, mixes with 10% RAP, and we had a total of 216 data points for this analysis. Uh, and a wider range of volume of binder were available for the specimens for the EME2 specimens compared to DGA, like 12.5 to 14.5%. So we were able to derive both the modulus-dependent relationship as well as the relationship including VB uh, in the form of the current static model in the guide. Um, the right figure again shows a comparison between the logarithm of the laboratory measured static lives and the predicted static values uh, using these two uh, derived models, the green and yellow markers, uh, together with the predictions from the shell 
the blue markers here. Um, the uh, relationship including modulus and VB has the lowest RMSE value, as you can see, uh, compared to the modulus dependent and obviously compared to the shell relationship too, it is significantly lower than the one from shell. Uh, so this again confirms that the new relationships are a better predictor of the EME to materials behavior. Uh, and lastly, the preliminary relationship shown here, as you can see, has a, a damage exponent of 5.2, uh, which is a slightly higher than the damage exponent of 5 in the current Ashmortati relationship. Uh, also, the overall modulus exponent is a slightly higher than the currently used relationship, which means that the uh, influence of modulus on fatigue uh, or EME2 ashpot mixes is slightly more significant compared to the original uh, shared relationship and also compared to DJ mixes with conventional determinants. Well. But uh, obviously, uh, the difference between the relationships developed in this study and the original share relationship is less significant for EME2 compared to the model for DGA mixes that I showed in the previous slide. Uh, so these uh, were the main findings of our analysis and modeling. And uh, now I hand over to Joe again for the last section, the future research and recommendations. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Nagin. So we'll just quickly wrap up. Um, next slide, thank you. So what does this all mean? Um, so we've developed those two uh, models, one for dense graded asphalt mix with um, conventional bitumen up to 15% RAP, which is different than the shell relationship, as well as a model for the EME2 asphalt with up to 10% RAP, which is again different to the shell um, relationship. Um, so that's preliminary models based on the data that we did receive. Um, so what we um, recommend for further work is to um, undertake some additional fatigue testing to validate those models for both the dense graded and EME mixes. Also some additional testing to look at whether we have that um, lower plateau at 10 or 15 degrees um, um, temperature. Um, so that we can establish what's the minimum temperature we should be testing our mixes um, at. Um, there's also the question that we have around, do we actually need a volume of binder, i.e. binder content factor in our relationship for dense graded asphalt mixes? Um, considering that based on the data we received, we produced those mixes in a relatively narrow range of binder contents. Um, there's also an opportunity to consider whether we um, adopt different um, design or fatigue relationships for colder versus hotter climates, and then how do we deal with testing asphalt mixes with PMP binders in the laboratory. So that's some of the further research that, that we need to consider. Um, also worth noting that our um, we haven't received any data to date that suggests that our design outcomes using the Ostroads model are inappropriate. So what we'd be looking at to do in the first instance is to use those preliminary models after we validated them to um, recalibrate our shift factors in the design model to, um, 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 to transfer our lab performance to field performance. Um, to essentially get the same design outcomes at this stage until we get data potentially that, that suggests otherwise. Thanks, Nikin. Next slide. So recommendations for the next stage is, like we said, a stage two will be validation testing um, to validate those two models that we did develop. We need to recalibrate our shift factors um, so that we don't achieve a design outcome or result in a design outcome at this stage until we get any other data. And what we're proposing to do, do is develop a shift factor for polymer-modified mixes based on the fatigue performance of conventional asphalt and observed field performance. Um, so rather than develop it based on test data, use the conventional asphalt test data with a different shift factor. And then we're also proposing to undertake a separate project that actually reviews the current test method or assessment procedures to characterize the fatigue performance of polymer-modified mixes in the laboratory so we can sort out that relativity issue. And that's it um, for us. I think it's over to, to question time.
Okay, yep, thanks very much, Joe, and again for that wonderful presentation. And we do have a few uh, questions are coming through on the chat window, so um, I just encourage people to add any further questions they might have. We might have a bit more time for a few more. Uh, so the first question, how do we measure and take care of local self-healing in the sample during fatigue testing? Oh, that's a that that's an interesting question. Thanks, thanks for that. And and it's actually something that we we have looked at um, very preliminary in an ACO study. So there's a theory, and and this has been demonstrated that um, asphalt does have the ability to to heal if um, if there's a, a sufficient rest period between loads. Um, the challenge is to to replicate that that healing in the laboratory in a laboratory environment. We did some preliminary testing, like I said before, and we weren't able to capture that full healing process. Um, and, and it's all to do with the time of rest period between the between the loads and the test becomes too long. Um, in my view, the best way to approach that healing process that occurs is, is currently the way it's being captured is through that shift factor. So we know we won't be able to fully capture the performance of a material in the lab 100% accurately because there's always limitations with the testing we do. It's then how we translate that lab test to a field environment through that shift factor in our design model. And that shift factor includes things like asphalt healing, um, traffic wonder, um, environmental changes or anything like that. So that, that's how I propose we do that in going forward. Thanks, Joe. Um, so the next question, uh, interesting to note the variation of results between lab and plant mixes. Are the findings based or do they include any samples taken from the field? So I think that means cut, say, from a, from a road and um, beams manufactured from those um, field-derived samples? Uh, not a, no, the study only um, included data that we've received, so available test data, so unfortunately didn't include anything, um, additional testing or samples from, from the field itself. Um, but yes, there's certainly a difference between your lab versus plant mix specimens based on what we've seen so far and, and a need to standardise that process going forward. Yep. Uh, so this one I think is for you, Nagin, on slide 37. How was the strain damage exponent calculated? Was this done at a single value of strain? Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, the strain damage exponents are actually the slope uh, of the regression analysis. So uh, whether you have a linear equation or nonlinear equation, the slope you obtain for each specific mix uh, through the regression analysis for all the for all the available data at different strain levels can be obtained is uh, the strain damage exponent or a slope that are shown here. So it includes all the data at different strain levels to finally obtain that slope for that each specific mix. And temperature, yep. And temperature, each specific condition, basically. Yeah. Thank you. Um, another question for you, again on slide 39. Are the displayed lab mixes the same aggregate size? Is it possible that some of the variation could be explained due to different aggregate matrix in each mix? Uh, we included mixes with for the modeling. Uh, if you are referring to the modeling for DGA mixes for conventional or either of them, EME2, we included mixes uh, with different aggregate sizes. Yes, that's right. Uh, whether it could uh, be the reason of the variability. Or no, we at some stage of the project we looked at different options that may result in the variability, like 
whether they are prepared in the lab, whether uh, they include RAP or other factors to finally uh, come up with a consistent comparison for each mix. So for the modeling, for example, we only looked at the mixes prepared in the lab. We only included the mixes that are, have like limited uh, percentage of RAP. Uh, but we haven't divided them based on different aggregate sizes uh, in terms of the modeling. Joe, do you want to add anything? Yeah, just to add this, uh, yeah, like Nagin said, it does include um, different ranges of aggregate sizes, with, which will affect the, the variability we do see. Um, but the design model or the lab model that 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 we develop, similar to the models we currently use, um, doesn't separate. We don't develop separate models for um, different aggregate sizes. So, ideally, we want a single model that will represent a range of of asphalt mix sizes. Yeah. But yeah, no, it can affect the variability in that model. Thank you. Um, so it, there was a one of the charts shown uh, that the measured fatigue lives were less than predicted by the shell fatigue relationship. So will that mean, uh, or does that mean that uh, pavements are thinner than what they should be? No. no. So that, that's what I uh, tried to bring across um, towards the end of my presentation. It's a very important point to make is that no. Um, this is based on lab data. So our design models has got that additional reliability factor and shift factor that converts our lab relationships to field performance. And to date, we haven't received any evidence or any data to support any inappropriate or inadequate pavement design outcomes using the design model, which includes both the lab relationship as well as that shift and reliability factor. So no, we, um, we, we certainly don't suggest that the design outcomes is inadequate. Um, all we're suggesting is that the, that the laboratory fatigue model over predicts the performance, but that overprediction is, is, is being balanced out, if you like, by the shift factor and the reliability factors that we apply to that model to get it to an um, in-service in model. So that, that, that's a very clear distinction we, we have to make, or important point we have to make, that we're not suggesting any inappropriate design outcomes at yes. this point in time. And for that reason, if we choose to um, adopt a different laboratory model based on our mix-specific testing, we would recalibrate those shift factors so that we get similar design outcomes because at this stage we just don't have evidence to suggest that we're either over designing or under designing our pavements. Thanks Joe. Um, just a couple more questions. Um, will presumptive values be produced from the data? Um, not from this, uh, that wasn't part of this project. The data is available, so um, road agencies can certainly, um, you know, utilize that data to, to, to develop some presumptive values um, for um, mixed design purposes and the like, but yeah, no, it wasn't, um, wasn't included as, as part of this study. Okay, and maybe the last question. Uh, why is it that a PMB asphalt mix has a higher fatigue resistance? but requires a larger mechanistic design thickness compared to a conventional binder mix? Um, yeah, look, good good question. And it, it, it comes down to the stiffness of the mix. So that's one of the challenges we have at the moment with, with our current models is that's a modulus dependent model. Is uh, PMB mixes typically have a lower modulus compared to say conventional asphalts. So that means your strain in your pavement structure is higher, which then means you have to give a thicker pavement um, to, to, to accommodate that higher strain. And that's because our, our current models doesn't account for, yes, it's got a polymer modified mix, it's got a lower modulus, but they've got an improved fatigue performance. So it, it's, you know, what you lose in modulus, you gain in the fatigue performance of, of, of the polymer modified binders. So that's one of the challenges using a, a single model for both conventional and PMB mixes. And that's, that, that, that's the reason you get those different design outcomes between the two type of binders. But it is Thanks a question that comes very, very regularly. 
I think that's, um, we're sort of running out of time. There's a few other questions and comments um, that have been submitted, but we'll answer those in writing after, um, sometime after today in the coming days. And I'll hand back to Ekaterina just to wrap up the webinar. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Joe and Nigin. And thanks um, to our audience for your questions. And as Peter said, yes, we have a few of them left um, and we will prepare written responses and send them to you shortly. Um, just a couple of slides to wrap up today's session. As you can see on the screen, we have um, a bunch of webinars coming up. So please go to our website, have a look. Uh, and if there's anything interesting for you, um, register. Um, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. It really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Once again, today's session has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published um, on our website. Thanks again everyone, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.